Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we come to your word this morning, Father, may we, may we do so uh, in humility, believing that these, these are your words to your people, for your glory, and for our good. And Father, may we see that they are weighty, that they are more important than the words we hear oftentimes around us, or the words we read. They're more important than even our circumstances or our emotions. Um, Father, for they are your words to us, the people who need to hear them. So, Father, as we study your words, Father, may we, may we do so. Father, may, may the words that come from my mouth, may they be faithful and true to your word. And, Father, may your people hear and see Jesus in, in these short moments that we have together. And Father, I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Matt, one of the pastors here. If you have your Bibles and you haven't turned there already, please go to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be in verses 7 through 11 this, this morning. We'll be uh, really coming to the end in this section is uh, what has been uh, termed or known as the kind of the closing to the body of 1 Peter. So this is the end of kind of the the middle section of the book of First Peter, and then beginning next week, we'll be working through the, uh, the kind of the closing to the letter. And again, to remind you, with, with Peter, Peter is not like Paul in Paul's writings, where Paul is usually very theological, and then here's the application. Uh, Peter is more cyclical. He's going to touch on things over and over and over again, like you've heard suffering that's been you're going to hear that again. You've heard how are we to act amongst the world around us. And then you're going to hear that again as we go through the closing of the letter. And, and we've already touched on multiple times how we relate as Christians to one another within the body of Christ. And you're going to hear more of that again as we go. Peter is very cyclical. Now he begins this section with the, the phrase, The end of all things is at hand. And where we ended last week was with that phrase and the idea that we're, we're almost home. That, that if you're a follower of Jesus, that, that you're almost home. That judgment is almost here. And for some, that's a, a beautiful thing. And for others, not so much. But that it's just a little more time and the kingdom in its fullest will be here. Jesus will be here. And we don't know if that will happen in our lifetime, but we know that Peter said that this final stage in God's plan of redemption is here, and that we live in the midst of that. And that this should be your motivation for what he's about to say. So all four, we talked about there being four imperatives from this section for Christian living amongst the community of believers and his motivation for this living is that the end of all things is at hand. These four marks 
should be motivated by the fact that Jesus is coming and his coming judgment is just around the corner. That these are not suggestions, but they're commands for righteous living. These are not just ideas so that we could all be a little more happy and get along. These are commands, instructions, imperatives for what righteous living amongst the body of Christ looks like. The four items that we talked about, the four imperatives, the first two we talked about last week was this. Think rightly and clear-minded so that you can pray. Think rightly and clear-minded so that you can pray. The second was persist in a love for one another that covers sin. This week, I'll go ahead and give you the two. You can write them down, but we'll address each one separately. The first one, be graciously hospitable to fellow believers without complaining. Be graciously hospitable to fellow believers without complaining. And number four, I'll give you a second. Let's write that down. Number four, serve one another with the gifts of grace that you have received. Serve one another with the gifts of grace you have received. Let's begin with the third one. Be graciously hospitable to fellow believers without complaining. Look at verse 9. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, I don't know about you. I I really like Peter for this reason. He's kind of straightforward. Do this without moaning and complaining. Do this without, and he doesn't give a bunch of flourishes of like, well, I know I understand people can be difficult and, you know, situations are hard. Peter's like, look, you're called to show hospitality and do it without complaining. Now, literally what Peter is saying beyond that is to open your home to each other. Open your home to each other. And I think what we oftentimes want to do is jump straight to some broad general application or principle of what he's talking about. And we'll do that in a moment. But oftentimes to the neglect of the immediate point to the people. They were to open their homes so that their brothers and sisters could be taken care of. Some were traveling. Some could have lost their homes under persecution. Who knows? But they were to open their homes. Now, I know not all of our homes or household experiences are the same. But I know when I think about my home, I love my home. It's my refuge. It's the place I am most safe and most loved. It's the place of my family. And what that means, like the intimacy of a family. My offspring. The covenantal relationship with my wife. The home, even in this day, generally and biblically, should represent much of the same. That's a place of covenant. A place of safety, but not safe for the flesh, but safe for the Spirit of God and us to work out our salvation. The home represents these things. You see, 
think to draw the principle now from this point is that they were to take that which was very private, that which was very safe or intimate, and open it to others. They were to take that which was safe or very private, intimate, and open it to others. They were to be, and we're going to use this phrase going forward, they were to be open-hearted with each other. They were to be open-hearted with each other. That really kind of encapsulates the idea of hospitality. We take hospitality as just, well, I'm just going to open the door for you, or I'm going to say hi, right? Uh, or, you know, you need a couple bucks, here you go. Like, that's hospitality in our day. But what he means, hospitality really means is open-heartedness with each other. This does absolutely, certainly include inviting people into your home. I would encourage you to practice that practically. Invite the college student into your home. Invite the widow. Invite the military family who is far from their families, their biological families. If you're single, invite the family with 20 kids over. If you're married with kids, invite those singles over. Don't just invite the people that are most comfortable for you to have in your home. If all you do is invite those sort of people into your home that are most like you or you most enjoy, are you actually open-hearted with each other or just open-hearted to that which makes you feel good? Be open-hearted. Invite others into your home, certainly in a practical sense there. Listen, in a hostile world, which was true of Peter, it is true of our day, the church should be a place of safety and well-being for its members. A place where common beliefs unite more than differences divide. Now let me be clear, open-heartedness doesn't mean a safe haven or an accommodation for sin. I think some of us oftentimes confuse being open-hearted with giving occasion to sin. Practically, we think sitting and listening to someone's sin, oftentimes things like gossip or grievance or concerns or, to use this passage's words specifically, grumbling, we think that that is us being hospitable to people. Or we think entering into their situation is paramount. But consider this, if you invite someone into your home and you also invite someone into their home that would be into your home at the same time that would be harmful to your guest, is that actually hospitable? If you invite a wolf in at the same time or if you allow or accommodate the sin of that brother or sister to thrive, I would mean, you're not only not being hospitable, but you're actually being harmful. Because you're helping to reinforce and give occasion for that. So let's not, con- let's not confuse open-heartedness with sitting there and accommodating someone's sin. But instead, an open-heartedness, to put it another way, is love willing to sacrifice in order to bring others close. To bring others in. Think of it like this. Of course, Jesus came to earth, died for our sins, and now invites us through His blood to come close to Him and enter His house. To be a, a part of His 
family even. To give, to give you refrigerator rights, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Because Christians have been reborn, reborn by God into a new and living hope that characterizes this final stage of God's redemption plan, they are to be graciously hospitable to one another. Graciously hospitable. Now, Peter, so they'd be open-hearted, but Peter says, he gives this caveat at the end, they're to do so without grumbling or complaining. Now, at the outset, I think this reminds us that being hospitable to each other can be burdensome and most likely will be so. That being hospitable will be burdensome. Now, just as a reminder, just because something's burdensome doesn't make it wrong, correct? Being hospitable is hard. Those who are open-hearted may grow tired of that service and grow worn out. Now, we have to be careful. I think it's in, in the midst of of life and doing what we think is hospitable on one hand, saying hello, even inviting people into our lives and acting friendly, but then on the other hand, grumbling and complaining. If we think we're showing hospitality in that mix and yet we are grumbling, we're falling short of the imperative. But yet this, this open-heartedness requires much of us. He is saying you, you can't just be hospitable and complain and check the box at the end of the day. Instead, this, this open-heartedness requires much of us. It certainly requires an active dependence on the Lord. Listen, it also requires doing things practically like actively preparing your soul to spend time with certain people. Or cautiously fighting to not cave to the temptation to begrudge your charity to others. We also have to fight to not use our hospitality as a means of self-righteousness. Well, I did this for you, now you're going to do this for me. Or I expect a certain return on my hospitality. It's certainly easy to do that as you invite those who do not follow Jesus into your home. And, and it's easy to build up this expectation that, well, now you've got to go to church with me. And begin to come grumble and complain. It's easy to do this with each other. From one Christian to the next. To show hospitality and expect some sort of preferred response. Let me say this. Some of, some of you have opened the intimate place of your soul to others. And people have come in and wrecked the place. Sometimes it's because that person intended to do so. Sometimes it's because they didn't know any better. Sometimes friends come in and wreck the place. You're open-hearted. They came in and they wrecked the place. 
Sometimes church leaders come in and wreck the place. Those who, who should even know better. Sometimes children come in and wreck the place. Church, I think we all know what we're talking about here. We're to be open-hearted, and yet we've been broken-hearted in the midst. So those who, who know what I'm speaking of here, listen to me on a couple things. First of all, recognize that your hurt doesn't necessarily mean that they did something wrong. Maybe your flesh was wrecked. That would be a good thing. You need to know objectively from the Scriptures, was it legitimate sin that wrecked the place or was it my own sin that was being wrecked? But if for a moment, let's assume that it's because of their sin, this imperative still applies to you. It still applies to me. He's not saying be open-hearted unless you've been burned X amount of times. There is no uh, uh, exclusion here for some reason that might be convenient or even hard. We have to figure out by the grace of God, and I think we'll talk through some of this as we go, but we have to figure out by the grace of God how to continue to be graciously hospitable without grumbling. A couple sub-thoughts here. If we can't, then we have functionally become slaves to those who wrecked the place. Instead of slaves to Christ and Christ alone. Or B, the other problem if we don't pursue by God's grace to, to live according to this imperative, even though we've been, we've been hurt or the place has been wrecked, we will neglect those who come into our lives in the future. Listen, they're not the ones who wrecked the place. Don't make them pay for what someone in the past did. And I know, listen, I know that that's hard. I, I know. We are slaves to no one but Jesus. And Jesus can set us free to be what He has called us to be. I was just talking a couple days ago someone who was abused in multiple ways by family members as a child and hearing the testimony of the gospel setting him free from slavery to those who wrecked the place in his life. Such an encouragement to my soul. Here's something that helps me personally. This is just a, a personal application. This this hospitality, inviting others, open-heartedness, I, I think is a, is a talent that the Lord gives to His people. It's, it's something for us to steward and something for us that He expects us to invest wisely. And when He returns, I really want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not just my heart to be open-hearted with, it is His heart that I'm called to be open-hearted with. I know it's hard. And I f fight by the, by the Spirit to desire hearing well done and good and faithful servant more than a desire to keep from suffering. We should be humble in closing in this first point. We should be humble and joyful in our hospitality. 
this is not something you're going to walk out of here and just flip a switch and boop, boop, I'm good to go, right? It's, so this is going to have to be worked out the rest of your life, most likely. The, the fourth imperative here, serve one another with the gifts of grace that you have received. Serve one another with the gifts of grace you have received. It will be in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So now he's talking about gifts. He breaks them into kind of two categories of gifts here. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. The speaking gifts. Apostleship, the idea of forth-telling, teaching, exhortation, and such. Serving gifts like giving, leading, mercy, helps, etc. It's not an exhaustive list that I've just given. But he breaks them into two categories. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. And what he's saying However you fill out that list, we are stewards of these resources. There are tools to be used, not tools to sit in your garage or in your cabinets. So the question is, with those gifts, will we invest them or will we keep them selfishly? Or will we, a, a, third, a third option here, will we do what looks like investment, but we're really just doing it to serve ourselves? We should take note here that he says varied grace. That God's grace takes many shapes. Takes many shapes. His gifting is manifold or diverse or assorted. There's a lot of degree of difference from one gift to the next. And I would give us a couple cautions based on that reality. One, when God's grace comes knocking on our door, we often want to define the way that grace should look for us. We want to say, if it doesn't look that way, then I don't want to receive it, or I'm closed off to it. If, it, if it's too strong for me. I, uh, I just, you know, I, I'm just not ready to hear that. Or, or if it's, you know, just not shaded quite the right color for my emotions of the moment. We want to define the way God intends to give us grace in the moment. Another caution. That your gift is a part of a body. And not only does that mean you are to use it in that body, but it also means that body and its leaders are those called to affirm the legitimacy of that gift. So as a caution, just because someone or even another church in the past has said you have this gifting, that doesn't mean it's still valid or that it even was in the first place. So not only to use it, but the body is around you to help sift it, to see if it's legitimate. 
Now he says, moving on here, that these gifts must be used to serve one another. Let's, let's highlight that. The gifts must be used to serve one another. God gives much to you and I that we may give much to others. He overflows our cups so that, not just so that we could spill the extra on others, but so that we could keep dumping the cup out on other people. The goal is not just to keep your cup full and to yourself. The goal is to keep the cup full and keep dumping it on everybody else. It's only meant to run through you as water runs through a pipe. You and I are just stewards of that pipe and the water that flows through it. You feel empty often because you keep pouring it out on others? Good! Keep going back to the well that never runs dry. So are you serving yourself? Maybe you ask things often subconsciously. I, I, I doubt you do consciously. What can I get out of it? Can I get a thank you or did I get a thank you? Self-righteousness, fulfillment. How about this? Another idea, another way to sift through, am I serving myself, is do you serve only when it's convenient or when it costs you little? There's a good chance you're serving to serve yourself. Let me dispel a few myths when it comes to serving or being served by another's gift. So let's kind of, if we're talking about gifts in the midst of community, let's talk about some myths that I think we oftentimes are given to believe, probably subconsciously. First one is this. I'm checking my box of service. I've checked it. Therefore, I must be walking in righteousness in all areas of my life. So we take this, I've, I'm, I'm in servitude here, and that makes us feel good, right? But how easy is it then to take that good feeling and lay it over top of everything, everything else in our life as though it is righteous? Second, just because you declare someone's service unto you to be hurtful or not safe or unhealthy doesn't mean it isn't serving you. Do you understand how Satan in our day uses these things, these feelings as trump cards to close off our ears to God's means of grace in serving us. Listen, our flesh will never feel safe in the presence of God's gifts in service to us. Let me remind you of Proverbs 27, 5-6. through six. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. And the one we are probably most familiar with, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And then answer, answer the question honestly. How often is your flesh present and at work? For me, it's all the time. It's always at work and always being warred against. We can effectively say no to God's grace using common cultural vernacular 
and issues of our day. Next myth. We don't always know exactly what service is best for others. We should ask. Ask church leaders. Ask that friend, how can I help you most? Don't assume that you just know what's best. God has given you this gift, but maybe your gift is not what's needed right now. Maybe someone else's gift or a different tool in your toolbox. But again, on both sides of that, like we have to be careful that we don't say no to God's grace. At the same time, those who are using the tools got to be careful that we don't assume we know which part of God's grace the person needs. Oh, how we need the Spirit and the Word to help us. Next, service should never lead to a critical spirit. Service should never lead to a critical spirit. Genuine service, I would argue, will not lead to a critical spirit. Some of us, and I genuinely mean myself, get so worked up by what others are doing, what others are not doing, by others not doing it the way we would prefer them to do it. Let me quote to you from preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He said this, I am sure that there are many of you professing Christian people who do not bring anybody to Christ because although you know how it ought to be done, you keep on finding fault in those who do it. Now just leave your fellow servants alone and get to your own work. Oh, you say, there's a person who is constantly trying to speak to others. He is really quite intrusive. Yes, I know him very well. But instead of bothering your head about him, would it not be as well for you to do the work better yourself if you can? If you tried to do so, you would not then have any inclination to find any fault with your fellow servant. If we were all determined to do what we could and to do it well, we would serve the Lord acceptably and be blessed in doing it. It's really easy in our service, just like the Pharisees, to elevate ourselves and say, wow... At least I'm not like that person. Now we don't say it that way. But we say it that way when we grumble or complain about the way in which they're serving. There is no gift of the Spirit called the critical spirit. If you find yourself continuing to find fault in the service of a sibling there is a good chance it's because you are not determined to do all that you can and to do it well. Instead, your baseline assumption is that you already are doing all that you can and doing it well. That's why you have time to open your eyes and look around. Instead, Peter says here, Use your gifts to genuinely serve those in the body. To lay yourself on the altar for their good. To put your hand to the plow for their good. I would encourage you with this. The more we understand just how selflessly Jesus has served us, 
the more we can selflessly serve others. Just, just think about this. Maybe another helpful thought. Not in my script here, but when you're, when you're assessing serving, and like, just think for a moment. To take a step back and go, how much of that am I thinking in terms of how it relates to me? How it orbits around me? How I feel about this? What I think about this? Instead of what does God think about this? And how does this orbit around God? And how does this please and glorify God? Next, he says, to endeavor to speak the very words of God. So, the serving gifts, now the speaking gifts. I think primarily, he's referring to preaching or official teaching capacity. I don't think there's, there's no application beyond that. I'll get to that in just a second. But the oracles of God refer to the words God has given to His people. Now thinking about preaching or the offices of teaching specifically, like what John Calvin said, he said, when a man has climbed up into the pulpit, it is so that God may speak to us by the mouth of a man. So preaching is God's word in some sense, yet the preacher's words are human too, and therefore often garbled, weak, sometimes even false. That's why in James 3.1 it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. But yet, Paul, or well, whoever wrote Hebrews, I think it's Paul, but in verse, chapter 13, verse 7, says this. So that, that was a slip. He says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Someone said this, I read this week, For the true Christian... When they hear Christ proclaimed, according to the picture, according to the rather the pattern of Scripture itself, they hear more than explanation and application. They hear Christ Himself imploring them to believe and to live by grace. Jesus Himself said, said in John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Of which is a test for us. You will hear the oracles of God. I've been been so dearly encouraged over the past couple months. Stories where people have heard more than just explanation and application. But hearing Christ Himself imploring them. Let me say this, if you can't count yourself among that group, maybe you don't have ears to hear the oracles of God or the voice of your shepherd. Now, generally applied, generally applied, we should all endeavor to speak God's words. How easy it is to think that we can assist others with our own wisdom or lead them with our own words. Oh, but I got this personality chart. I understand you. 
Listen, I'm, I'm, I know I pick on personality charts. Like, listen, <laughs> they, they can maybe be of some help. But they are nothing compared to the words of God. The Word of God helps us understand each other. What do you quote more? Listen, we should be leery of someone who always wants to harp on man's wisdom or man's experience. Someone who always goes back to their life or who always bases things on our opinions or someone else's opinions or someone who doesn't consistently, faithfully stand on the oracles of God. And we have to be careful, right? Because in, in Timothy, he talks about having preachers and teachers and gathering around those to speak into our life that will tickle our ears. We have to be careful because just because something that is said feels good or feels safe doesn't make it the oracles of God. Let me remind you back from Proverbs 16, verse 28 through 29. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Man's wisdom can lead us away from God. But it might feel good for the moment. But those whom God has given His words to are instructed to speak them and to speak them carefully. There's this, there's this uh, double application here that, that we're to know the oracles of God and we're to speak the oracles of God. There's an emphasis, a priority on speaking the oracles of God. Now, this, now, now let me say, this isn't permission for us to keep our mouths shut if we don't think we can do so. Sometimes we should. But it should be an encouragement to dig into the oracles of God. To dig into the Scriptures. To check everything we say back with the Scriptures. And to have people around us who will tell us when we're not speaking according to the Scriptures. But dig into them. Know them. Speak them. They are the words of life to those who are around you. Do we we want a unified, maturing church? It will come only as we grow in speaking clearly the oracles of God to each other. I get it. That's a heavy exhortation. It is something your elders take very seriously. With the idea of it being a heavy exhortation, let me remind you what Peter says at the end. He said, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that who supplies? God. With the strength that God provides. Are you running out of strength? It could be because you're serving in your strength. That's one of the things I'm grateful for in being an elder. It's one of the things I'm thankful for in getting to preach regularly is that I am regularly reminded that my strength has a very quick end to it. I was actually praying before coming up to preach today. As I was sitting in the, standing in the pew while y'all were singing and I was trying to sing with you and I was praying to the Lord, I need your strength. 
Now, presumably, uh, according to the context, we would do this through praying. That we, that we just spoke about last week. Being sober-minded and clear-mindedness so that we can pray. And then according to this verse, the, the, the value of the oracles of God should feed that strength. And let me remind us of this. The provider is always the praised one. The provider is always the praised one. Listen, if human beings are the source of wisdom and strength for ministering to each other, then they deserve to be complimented. They deserve a thank you. But if understanding that energy to do so comes from the Lord, then He gets the glory as the one who empowers His people. Most often, the words from our mouth should be, I am thankful to watch the Lord's work through you. I'm thankful for what the Lord has done in your life this past week. Now, once again, what is Peter's motive in this context? To be clear-minded, covering over sin, to be open-hearted, to use our gifts for the good of each other. It is this, that we are in the final stage of God's redemption plan. That Jesus, at the end of all things, verse 7, is at hand. Right, he starts off with that phrase and says, therefore, here's your imperatives. The end of all things is at his hand. The return of our King, Jesus, should motivate God's people. It should shake us out of our complacency. It should call us to purity. It should confront us with the very essence of eternity and should point us particularly the fact that our gifts are serving not just today, but are serving eternity. I'm making investments that will last for millions and millions of years. To put it another way, we, at this stage of God's redemption plan are living much in the fruit of God's generosity. We live post-cross, post-resurrection. We live in the generosity of the cross and the resurrection. To quote Spurgeon again, he says this, We have known men say, Well, I suppose I must give something, but these claims come terribly often. My purse is always being drawn upon, but I suppose I cannot get out of it without a subscription. He gives, Spurgeon speaking of this person, says he gives, and, and don't think about, he's talking about money here, don't think just money. He gives as if he were parting with his blood. His fingers tremble and linger long over the shilling, which has to be extracted as forcibly as if it were a tooth. One wonders that the queen's image is left upon the palm of his hand when it has been held with such pressure. But the Lord, he goes on, gives out of the greatness of his heart without so much a trace of unwillingness. Even when the boon was his own son, he freely delivered him up. His son, Jesus, has been resurrected after paying the price for our sins and now he's restoring all things. He's been so gracious to us. And he is saying, the end of all things is at hand. That generosity, the season that we're in, be generously open with your hearts. Generously use the resources you have for each other. And this age of generosity will close and give way to the next age where we'll have grace showered upon us. Oh, grace upon grace upon grace, as Ephesians 1 says. 
But this season will come to a close as Christ's judgment comes in how we use that generosity. So let's think for just a moment as I land this plane. Think together about the use of God's gift, gifts in light of the end of all things is at hand. Okay? To do so, let's let Jesus teach us from His parable in Matthew 25. So I'm going to read 16 verses here for us. But follow me with this parable. Jesus is speaking here. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, listen to these words, these chilling words. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was what? I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are strong words from Jesus himself when it comes to the using and the stewarding of the gifts that God gives us. Now, Peter is saying, at the, the end of all things at hand, what is he saying? The Master is about to return. Now we don't have time to dissect the, the whole parable. I just want to hit the highlights. First of all, the gifts, the talents we have were given to us by Jesus. Everything that we have, He gave to us our time, our money, the emotional bandwidth, the ability to speak, the ability to serve, comforting a hurting person, preaching, elding, etc., etc. And how gracious He is both to you to have the gift and how gracious He is for those who get to receive the utilization of your gifts. Whether He gave you five, two, or one. His grace is generous. 
Now, he's called us to invest those gifts, not to hoard them for security. To invest them. We're to invest them with the aim of a return. Now, what return? Well, according to this passage, the, the glory of God. We use the gifts for the glory and the dominion of God. How? Largely through leading others to know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all. That they would be mature in Christ. We invest our gifts toward that end. We're to use them in the body toward that end. Now listen, the man in this passage, the third man, he says, I failed because of what? Fear. I failed because of fear. I failed because I didn't feel safe. In a sense, this is true. He wasn't safe because he was in sin. But the master's diagnosis was different. He says, I didn't do what I was supposed to do because I was fearful. But Jesus says the diagnosis is different. What was his diagnosis? That he was wicked and lazy. He was slothful and evil. Listen, our, that's our proclivity in the flesh too. It's to be wicked and lazy when it comes to being open-hearted, when it comes to being sober-minded, when it comes to using the gifts that God has given us to invest in His kingdom. Laziness at its core is selfish in aim. But its motivator is often what feels good for the fleeting moment. What feels most suitable for today. And does not have an eye to the return of the Master. But Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, listen. The fruit, okay? The fruit or the returns on the investment. Let's talk about that for a second. The returns on the investment. Not only does the gift belong to Jesus, but the interest gained, gained belongs to Jesus. Okay? He gave the gift. The interest is His too. It's all His. He deserves it all. He deserves a glorious return on your investment. He deserves it. He deserves for you to go invest it all. And when He comes, He will collect what is His with the interest. And when He does so, He will be glorified in it. Because to Him belongs glory and dominion forever. Now think about this with me. You and I get to hand the gifts and the investment to Him when He returns. We get to say, Lord, You are worthy. Here is the return on Your investment. Just imagine the picture. Just like the three kings and the wise men and the shepherds bring gifts to the baby born in a manger. We will one day bring gifts to a king enthroned with angels. We get to hand those to Him. Right? It's His strength. 
It's His gifts. It's His return. But we get to hand it to Him. Listen. Those who have to keep running to the deep well of Christ's generosity and His varied gifts of grace in order to persevere in serving and hospitality, I would encourage you to rest. Your investment is likely expanding. And Peter is saying that the end of all things is at hand. The Master is about to return and collect what is His. And what is His? It's His redeemed people. And those redeemed people using His gifts and will give Him the return. Which is what? Christians who know, love, and obey Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we continue this morning and singing and the Lord's Supper. Father, as we go about this week, we think about the gifts that You've given us. Father, may we be enthralled with the idea that one day when Jesus returns, not because of anything glorious in myself or anything good of my own accord, but because of the glorious work of the gospel in my life and in ours, that we could look at Jesus and instead of saying, I took what you gave me and I hid it because I was fearful. Instead, here, have the little bit of return that was made on the investment through me. Have it, Jesus. For you are worthy of it and infinitely more. And may we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your Master's presence. Lord, by your grace and the work of the Spirit in our lives, the gospel seed growing and fruiting, may we by all your varied grace continue to walk faithfully, stewarding the gifts you've given us. Father, for your glory, for our joy, and our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.